It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here with somebody that I've been dying to talk to for a very long time, the extraordinarily talented, best-selling author many times over, Chuck Polinick. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, Tom, thank you for asking me. Dude, I am really excited. Uh, so glad that it lined up with your most recent book, The Invention of Sound, uh, which was a very much has your fingerprints all over it. There's something very unique about the way that you approach story and character that I am deeply affected by and entranced by. And the first thing I wanna to talk to you about, and I feel like there are gonna be many directions that we will go in the course of this conversation, not the least of which you promised we're gonna talk about Ted Bundy, uh, no. but is mental management. So in reading your works, you take a, a really raw look at some seriously hard to look at things which then in my research got me trying to answer the question, why? And you talk about cognitive reframing, you talk about chewing on things that bother you, are unchangeable, and yet you can't live with them. And that's sort of where your writing begins. And so I thought that would be a pretty interesting place to start. You know, uh, people, I find, make the mistake of thinking that you have to write about your issue uh, to be writing about your issue, uh, they, they kind of overlook the fact that no matter what you're writing about, you're writing about your issue. So no matter what the shiny subject is, you're eventually, if you do it right, you're going to fool yourself into exploring something fantastically dark because there's a reason why you are attracted to the shiny subject. So you can never get away from writing about yourself and writing about your unresolves so you might as well just accept that on the face of it. How much of like the human psyche do you think is, is about dealing with the dark stuff? Like, are there people that just sort of walk through life and they're not bogged down by that? And it's just a particular kind of person that finds themselves um, with those unresolved, as you call them, or is, is that darkness, that unresolved, just a natural part of the human psyche and everyone is going to deal with it? Uh, yeah, everybody's dealing with it, but I always, uh, I always get really nervous around people who are always cheerful and, and uh, enthusiastic all the time, because they're the people who seem to be the least effective at dealing with it. Uh, and I find them just incredibly exhausting, these people who are just being clever, because I see clever as just this ongoing way of sort of denying uh, the issue at hand rather than dealing with it. And so I feel like my, my life is wasted when I'm around people like that. Um, I would much rather be around the people who want to talk for, you know, 
who want to risk looking bad because when I'm around people who are just looking good, just telling their hero stories, um, I feel like I might as well be watching mainstream uh, television or, or so much so much media that is so heavily marketed and filtered and sent through test audiences that it's like this fantastically processed cheese. There is nothing left to it. Uh, yeah, there's nothing to be to be gained from it. There's nothing raw about it anymore. I'm really interested in in that need to process that humans have in finding um, that you're extraordinarily good at finding the sort of dark underbelly story that everybody has. And I don't know if you you are good at getting them out of people or if um, if you help people let their guard down or, or you just seek those people out who are willing to talk about them, I'm not sure. But like Guts, uh, which I didn't faint when hearing you read it, but dude, that like really, that changed my blood pressure. I was tingling. It was so uncomfortable. And the glee that you get when you have a chance to read that to people, I find utterly fascinating. Um, is there something that you're revolving around there in terms of your own unresolved? Like what, give people like the quick glimpse into what Guts is and then tell me why that one is so iconic for you. In order to read Guts publicly, you have to shed all human dignity. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> We are, you know, you talk about how we're, we human beings are meaning-making machines. We are also looking good machines. And we yes. are machines that just spend all of our time trying not to be dominated and trying to look good. Oh, fuck, you, dude. I've never heard anybody say that before. Sorry to interrupt you. Trying uh, not to be dominated? Trying not to be dominated by everything around us. And to a certain extent, trying to dominate. In a, in a kind of proactive way. But when you go up there in front of people and you read guts, you are, it's worse than taking your clothes off. You are <laughs> completely humiliating yourself. And there's a fantastic power in that. It's like doing this complete emotional striptease where you are left with nothing, no, no shred of dignity. And you have completely debased yourself. I have completely debased myself when I've read that story. And what's remarkable is when you read it to young people, young people's only access to power is in literally looking good, is in having a great deal of vitality and energy and in physically being as attractive as they can be because they don't have a lot of education. They don't have a lot of resources or connections yet. So their, their main access to power is looking good. So when you go up there, when I go up there, see, I keep switching to second person because I have to displace the whole experience. But when I go up there and I risk looking really bad and being humiliated, I show them a kind of power that they've never considered before. And I give them a freedom to present their worst self or the time that they really messed up badly. And so the magic of guts is afterwards in that 14-hour signing line, when people come up and they tell me the thing that they did that was as bad as guts. 
because they've never told anybody this and they've never felt safe telling anybody this. And so the magic of guts is that I give up any pretense of looking good. And so I give other people just that little window of, of doing the same. That is so intriguing to me. So I, I'm, I had in researching you the experience that people are having now listening to you that haven't heard guts yet. And I just kept hearing you mention it, mention it, guts, guts this. And, and I thought, I just need to hit pause and go find a version of you doing guts. And so I went and watched it. And honestly, Chuck, when I went into it, I was like, I'm so impervious to that stuff. Like one of the interview questions that I do when people interview with me is I asked them, when was the last time you were offended? And the reason I asked them that is it's a barometer for me of like sort of emotional resilience. And if you're easy to offend, it just won't be a good long-term fit with me hmm. um, because I consider myself almost impossible to offend. And things like words just don't get under my skin. Now, if seeing something visually, that could definitely be distressing, which is why I was so curious to know if you'd seen sick um, the, uh, the life and death of Bob, Bob Flanagan, super masochist. Cause that was hard to watch, but I didn't think there were going to be words that you could have written down on a piece of paper that would change my physiology. And Oh boy, was I wrong. And feeling myself get that like sense of, I want to look away. I mean, obviously there was nothing to see, but I wanted to look away from the ideas that you were presenting to me. And I just thought, Whoa, like, how do you, how do you go there? What would drive you to write that, to want to spend that much time with it? And in researching you, you threw out a line one time and I couldn't tell like if you were just joking or if that's like really the thing that makes guts so interesting to you. And you were like, oh, I don't have self-esteem at all. And I was like, that can't be true. Like he has to be joking. But if guts is you dealing with that to, to sort of lessen the emotional response of like, I'm just going to go up and be sort of emotionally bare naked in front of people. And I'm going to do it over and over and over until wanting to look good or please people is no longer a thing. Is that why you keep coming back to it? You know, th this kind of bridges to another topic that we had discussed getting to. And that is the idea that I think that you have to sacrifice your life for something. And I wrote a line in a story once where a character resolves to do something with the idea that history can live without one human being. I don't matter. Uh, history can live without me. And once you accept that, that, you know, that your life, that my life is going to be about this one thing, then it's kind of an honor to go up there and to ritualistically kill yourself by reading a story that nobody in their right mind would present in public. Um, it's just a kind of a wonderful sort of uh, Harry Carey or the ritualized sacrifice or suicide. Um, and that all comes from deciding at probably around the age of 30 or 31 that whether or not it was the right or the wrong decision, I was going to throw away the rest of my life writing fiction. Uh, yeah, that history could live without one person. A, that's a powerful insight. Um, B, it's a it's a pretty interesting story that you come to writing so late in your life. Uh, if I remember right, around 32, 33, you're working uh, in a diesel shop. 
if I'm if I have the sort of timelines here correct. Um, this idea of committing yourself to one thing, does that bother you at all that, that we can only essentially live one life? No, you know, it, at first it looks like this fantastically limiting thing. I can't commit to one thing because the opportunity cost would exclude everything else. But the irony is that by committing to one thing, it's given me a life that is so much larger than I ever could have imagined when I was trying to be a kind of generalist, a, a journalist who was going to kind of do a little bit of everything. But by focusing on one thing, I've got a bigger life than I ever, ever could have imagined for myself. So if I'm being honest, I think the there may not be anything in my life as aggravating to me as having to choose one life. And I, I really believe in the need for people to recognize that. I believe that it's super important that people embrace it. And I always give people uh, from a, a life perspective of, look, here's the perfect analogy. You're standing in a room with a thousand doors and your job is to close 999 of them. And that's, that's where people get stuck is it isn't even that they go through one and don't like it. It's that the idea of the opportunity cost of closing the doors is so paralyzing. And I bring that idea up because I am the guy standing in the room having a hard time closing the doors. And there are precious few things in life that irritate me as much as that. And I'm not sure like what sort of open wound that is that I'm trying to process through. And I've been able to do it. And as a result, um, you know, I've got a lot of worldly success, but I'd be lying if I said that I'd gotten over the irritation of like I really, for a long time until this year, I was obsessed, obsessed with living forever because it was the only way I could come to grips with that. Okay, if I have to do one thing at a time, at least in a sequence, I could do these sort of infinite things that I want to do. Uh, may I ask how old you are? You may. I'm. I just turned forty-five. Okay. Boy. I, I, I just turned 59 and I've kind of reached the cusp where the idea of living forever like a vampire is one of the most unpleasant things I can con conceive of at this point. Uh, because we, we're kind of constantly fed this idea as children, we're kind of fooled into the future that the future is gonna be this fantastically unfolding happy thing. And that's how we're kind of baited to kind of move forward when in fact, at a certain point, you realize that uh, that it's kind of a lie that we are kind of lured into uh, this this future we think is going to be a constant improvement, progress. When in fact, is just more and more levels of conflict. Uh, and so, in a way, this kind of choosing of one thing to immerse myself in uh, is a way of kind of escaping that, but also being present to it in a kind of very dedicated way that I can't escape it fully because I live in it. It is the water in which this fish swims, but I can choose one aspect of it and really unpack that and explore that with the help of a lot of other people and maybe come up with a really kind of breakthrough different way of being that I think as creative people we're, we're looking for to, to model a kind of social behavior 
or a kind of social structure or just a way of presenting ourselves and perceiving the world that if it's really effective, people will adopt it. And part of modeling it is to uh, depict it in a narrative in my case, so that people can kind of see the benefits of it and maybe begin to live their lives according to this new kind of way of being, or at least to perceive the world around them in this new way. Uh, and if we can do that really effectively, then you know that would be kind of the wonderful miracle is to create the game rather than kind of hoping that the game goes on forever. I wanna play a thought experiment with you that I do on myself a lot. So I have a hypothesis that um, people's lives are to an extraordinary degree dictated both emotionally in terms of whether you're happy or unhappy and in terms of what you actually do and accomplish in your life, they, it's determined by your frame of reference. I'll define your frame of reference simply as the things you believe you're capable of and are true about yourself and the things you believe are true about the world. And when that frame of reference is self-defeating, people are pretty unhappy, right? I'm stuck, the world's against me, I'm stupid, I'm not gonna be able to accomplish. Um, versus somebody who's maybe steeped just completely in delusion. I can do anything I want, the world is my oyster, um, and they're gonna be much happier. I mean, just looking at the neurochemistry, you could probably take a vial of blood and know, you know which one of them holds sort of what worldview based on for guys anyway, testosterone levels and things like that. And when I think about, okay, you've got this frame of reference and I wanna know, is my frame of reference empirically true? Is, it, is there um, sort of inherent usefulness because it is a more accurate map of the real world? Or is this frame of reference, if I could merely change the frame of reference, would it change how I feel? Would it change my behavior? So I play a game called you're a brain in a vat and all of your memories are fake. And so whenever I'm tempted to spiral out of control to feel really negative about something, I'll remind myself, no, 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 you're just a brain in a vat. Now, what that does, it so radically shifts my perspective because now I don't need to beat myself up over things in the past. Those were just memories implanted. I don't actually believe this. This is just a thought exercise. But these are just memories implanted in your brain to give you enough context. You're like human AI. You have to have context that will push you in some direction. So if you don't like the direction that feeling badly about your past is pushing you in, then just change it because it was all fake anyway. Now I'm completely aware that that is just a thought exercise. But as soon as I feel that little bit of relief of what it would be like if that thing were fake, then I'm like the only, nothing about my physical reality has changed. Nothing about the external world has changed. It is only my perception of who I am, where I come from that changes. And even though I'm aware of just playing a game, I can feel relief. So I'm like, well, if I feel relief, then I need to cognitively reframe whatever it is I'm thinking about that now pushes me in a new direction. Now I bring that up because if you were to play that game and I said something like, no, 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 you really are gonna live forever or all, all that stuff in your past isn't real. You were born right now in this moment. Would that change the way you think about the future? It's funny, I don't think I really think about the future. Um, and I, I've heard you say this before, a kind of uh, different version of this, and it was something to the effect of, so what? And that was Andy Warhol's mantra. 
whether he got good reviews or bad reviews, he would think, so what? It doesn't change anything. So what? He just kind of lived in this, in this sort of ongoing uh, minimizing or negation of either praise or, or, or damnation. So, how does that change anything? It doesn't. And so he was always sort of allowed himself to be drawn toward the thing, the shiny idea, the, the bright thing that drew him, rather than be a reaction to his past or a reaction to his present circumstances of whether or not people were praising him or not praising him. This, this constant philosophy of so what? Um, and a lot of people call that getting back to zero or getting back in some cases to empty and meaningless, kind of extracting all of the kind of value judgments and meaning from, from the moment so that you can give yourself the permission to pursue the thing that you wanna pursue. Uh, that it's not based on living forever or it's not based on escaping a terrible childhood. You're just drawn toward the thing that's attractive rather than uh, trying to earn something. My, my best writing teacher, Tom Spanbauer, whenever he, he started a workshop, he would say, if, you are, if your idea is to write this book or write this story in order to something, in order to make your dad happy or in order to make some money or in order to win a prize, you should not be here. You should only be in this workshop if you're writing because you love to write or you love the process of writing. Uh, if you're writing in order to be published and gain you know, celebrity, you, you shouldn't be here. You, you should be here because you love to do this thing. And the outcome is almost beside the point. And so in a way, that's where I'm always trying to come from so that I, I don't feel kind of uh, hobbled by someone else's agenda. And my success isn't dependent on somebody else's, uh, you know, decision of whether or not they like my stuff. Um, I hope that answered your question to some extent. It does. Um, it leads me to a follow-up, which is, so do you worry at all or or it's not even that so i want to better understand the frame of reference that you have now 59 years old you've dedicated yourself to one thing um and it's helping you discover and create something that might actually change the way that people interact with the world oh no no that's a that's kind of a byproduct that uh, that would be nice but really in the here and now it's about giving me a kind of thing to be obsessed about because I have to be obsessed about something. And as a creative person, you get to invent your own major problems. Uh, because if you don't invent your own problems and then seek to arbitrarily resolve them, then the world is gonna give you problems. And so I'm always able to choose a gigantic, gigantic problem that allows everything else around, you know, organizing my taxes and meeting all those day-to-day -day obligations. It makes all those things so not important. You know, I do them, but I don't, I don't suffer over them because I have bigger fish to fry, even those, those bigger fish to fry 
are, are, are of my own choosing. And if I do it right, then I realize that this seemingly arbitrary, huge problem I've chosen is actually my most deepest kind of secret neuroses that I would never share with the world. And by the time I'm done with this giant thing, I've exhausted all of my emotional reaction and attachment to this huge unresolved problem. And the problem just disappears. So it may look like I'm just sort of farting around with make-believe stuff, but I'm, I'm actually taking my big giant thing out into the world and, and, and resolving it and making it disappear. And there's something so fast, fascinating about that because so often when people read my stuff, they don't recognize that it's their giant problem too. And if I do it right, then they suddenly find this new freedom and they're not even sure how it happened. Um, yeah. In the new book, The Invention of Sound, what is the, the big problem for you? And I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it, but what was the big problem for you? Obviously, I know the, the straight narrative of the book, but what was the big issue for you that you were chewing on with that one? Boy, sometimes I don't even know it for two or three years after the book is done. And then I am absolutely mortified what I put out in the, into the world. And I hope that nobody ever figures out what I was actually talking about. Uh, invention of sound. On a, the most basic level, I'm always fascinated with how um, human beings and our experience are commodified and turned into something that can be bought and sold and even our most intimate lives become kind of data mined and bought and sold. That something that we've clicked on once suddenly starts popping up on our screen every time we log on. And that the whole world is buying and selling these very private things, these things that used to be so intimate. Uh, and among those is, is the sort of the manner of our death. Uh, it becomes a, a sort of a commodified form of entertainment for other people. Um, sex certainly, certainly has. And so in Invention of Sound, I wanted to kind of reinvent what I think of as tableau horror, where in typical tableau horror, you come across crime scenes, you come across butchered people, and you don't actually witness the violence, but you see a kind of forensic interpretation, uh, a narrative imposed on the violence. And then maybe at the end of the whole thing, you see a little bit of violence. And so tableau horror would be a Da Vinci Code, the alienist. In the alienist, you're always coming across a, a, a ritualistically butchered child prostitute, but it's always after the fact. And so I wanted to do tableau horror, but I wanted to do it with sound. The, the most intimate sound that you made at the moment that you met your death. Uh, I was at the end of my very long driveway in 2012, and I was waiting to turn right onto the highway. And coming down the highway, this very long twisting mountain highway was a truck. And it suddenly went up on two wheels and it was gonna flip. And it was going to land right on top of me. Ooh. It was a truck full of broken concrete and construction debris, a huge tractor trailer coming down the hill at 
70 miles an hour. And in that moment, as it toppled in, onto my Prius, a little white Prius, I thought, I'm really glad I've got uh, a good uh, a good will in place and all of my legal stuff is handled. I really thought that, I actually thought that. And I felt really good that I had lived so many years doing the thing I loved. But the embarrassing thing is I made a noise like a squeak toy, like your dog would chew on. I made a little shrill shriek like a mouse. And the truck crushed my car and knocked it off the highway into the woods. Whoa. Swatted it. And the car was all crushed around me. I couldn't get out for a long time. Uh, but I have never forgotten that sound I made. And I was so glad that nobody was there to record it. But I wanted to write about the last sounds that people make before they die. And in that commodified way, how those sounds would be bought and sold and how they already were to some extent, because so much of the, the screams that you hear in movies are these kind of cliched recordings that have been around since the 1930s and 40s and are, are now used as a kind of uh, sort of a trope, like an Easter egg to hide in movies. Oh, the Wilhelm, Wilhelm scream, that there are these institutionalized screams that uh, are kind of an industry joke. But I wanted these screams to be the actual screams of people. Uh, and it wasn't until after the fact that I realized that that was kind of something from the John Travolta film, uh, Blowout. Broken Arrow or Blowout? And the book, Blo I thought you said Broken Arrow. What, no, because I didn't, I'd never seen Blowout with John Travolta and Nancy Allen. Uh, it was a Brian De Palma film. And it uses one of the devices I use in the book. And I was just mortified that I had used something that was already in a Brian De Palma film. But I didn't know it until two or three years after I'd written my own book. Uh, yeah, anyway, I, on the most basic level, I'm always writing about the commodification of human experience. Um, because that's something you find unsettling. I find it kind of heartbreaking. And it's something that, that Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher always wrote about. He said, once we start commodifying trees and animals, it's just a matter of time before we commodify each other and we commodify ourselves. And I used to think that people went on Johnny Carson because they were friends with Johnny Carson. And it, it really wasn't until I was 35 that I realized, no, you go on those shows because you're booked to go on those shows. And the producer knows the anecdotes and will feed you the tosses so you tell those anecdotes and your job is to basically sell yourself and in doing so sell your product. It suddenly made all of life seem completely not special anymore. Uh, just made everything seem like the marketplace. And I can't fix that, but I can't explore it. And I can't exhaust my emotional reaction to it and then find some peace around it by writing books. It's really interesting to me um, that, that you have a big reaction from that. I was the exact opposite. When I discovered, oh, people go on shows, they're booked. Oh, they tell you like what anecdotes, they rehearse that. I felt like 
I just learned another piece of how the world works. And my youth was marked by a deep misunderstanding of how the world actually works. And so for me, it's always been this just thrill of, oh my God, like I understand another piece, like, okay, the, you know, there's these secret groups and they get together and there are certain things that they control. Like, that's so crazy. And I can't believe that's real, but I don't have a, and I don't, I don't say this as I think it's a good thing, but I don't have this sense of tragedy when I see something that I don't like. I'm more, I feel empowered because now, whether I think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I understand it. And once I understand something, I'm not going to fall prey to it, or at least I'm going to fall prey to it a lot less. And that has been like, my whole life has been about cobbling together. I always say skills have utility, meaning like if you get good at something, you can actually do something with it. And that's one of those statements. It's so self-evident that it, I can tell it never lands with people. And, and I just want to like stand up and scream. No, no, no. Like, once you understand, you can get good at something and literally shape the world around you, make more money, help more people, like whatever your thing is, like if you get good at the right thing, you can, you can really move things around. And so because I've struggled with sort of a, oh, wow, I totally misread that, did not understand how that went. And then as I get it, I'm, oh, okay, now I can move around. Like the biggest sort of hilarious misunderstanding in my whole life was with women. I was terrible with women. And finally discovering what it meant to embody confidence and then therefore was able to begin dating and actually have a, a functioning sex life, it was so eye-opening. And I don't know, that and many other things just got me hooked on like, okay, I just need to figure this game out. You know, and I understand figuring out the game, but there are some kind of I feel this kind of precious attachment to uh, to something magical in the world that, you know, as a kid from the middle of nowhere, I really thought that the, the world was somehow much more magical everywhere else. Uh, that there, it was really smart people making the decisions instead of just really well-connected people. Uh, a lot of times it's not the smartest and the most sort of creative people who get things out into the world, it is the most connected people or the people who make the thing that is mediocre enough to sell to a gigantic, gigantic audience. It's not about the best thing. It's about the thing that will appeal most readily uh, to the largest you know, market share. And it's really, those are tough things for me to be with now. I find that really, really interesting. Um, you guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, 
pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, dot com slash impact theory. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. So let's go. Your childhood is very interesting to me, and, and I'm not bringing up anything that you haven't talked openly about, but for sure, by all means, if there's something you're not interested in talking about, just let me know. But um, hearing the stories about your dad working on the railroad and you guys going out in the middle of the night when there would be a train wreck and there would be you know loose goods and um, you guys would go collect those. And he got married on top of a train, if I remember right, at one point. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me about the way you grew up culminating because the the most profound story I had about your youth and and I can't help but wonder how much it colors this desire for there to be sort of a magical world somewhere else um, is that your parents used to fight really bad and you and your um, siblings would diffuse that tension which I found <laughs> incredibly interesting we called it playing Henry Kissinger we were really small kids. We were like six, seven years old. But Henry Kissinger was such a cultural figure, constantly sort of hammering out a piece in the Middle East during that time, that when my parents would fight really violently, us kids, the four of us would hide in the basement. And we would 
decide whose turn it was to play Henry Kissinger. And to play Henry Kissinger, typically you injured yourself really badly. You cut yourself or you stabbed a, a needle or something really deeply Whoa. so that you bled really bad. And then you came upstairs from the basement and you were you created such a crisis that, uh, well, we created such a crisis that our parents would stop fighting for the moment and they would be forced to deal with this sort of life-threatening, uh, bloody mess. So in, in a way, it's kind of creating that distractive narrative that I, I continue to live by. Yeah, that, when I heard that, I was like, whoa, A, it's phenomenally interesting how cued in kids can be. I mean, at that age to recognize, oh, okay, wait, we could create this crisis moment, um, go upstairs, end this feud, that you wanted to end the feud uh, is already interesting. If you guys were, you know, sort of safe in the basement, that you had the impulse to, okay, we really need to step in and, and stop this, um, and that you could face the physical pain you know, the physical pain was nothing compared to the emotional pain of listening was to them go fear? at each other. It was just kind of an agony of seeing the worst aspect of both of them, uh, just battling each other in such unkind ways. And, and so often their arguments were about us. So it would be hearing our names uh, brought to bear as weapons against each other. Uh, how each How each was accusing the other of failing each of us. And so hearing ourselves weaponized in this sort of ongoing battle was a, a lot more painful than, you know, cutting ourselves with broken glass or something. Oh, my poor siblings. I don't think they would ever talk about this. They hate talking about this, but uh, it's something that we all sort of shudder over. Yeah, I can imagine. Is Has it been the writing that's allowed you to deal with it or? Um, you always seem so comfortable talking about hard things. You know, actually, there's an odd sort of therapeutic quality in going on the road and being sort of asked in a kind of therapy-like way by you and other people and people in an audience and people on national public radio and that you get used to telling these stories so many times they really lose their sting and you get a distance from them. And so uh, I got to thank you for that. Is, is it mere repetition or do you have, is there something about you and the way that you view the world you think that causes that cathartic release? This is another thing that Tom Spanbauer, my, my best teacher, always did. His very first class, his very first meeting with a new class, he would say, I want you to write about something that you just barely, barely remember. And people would think back and they would put down one tiny memory and they would find that by doing so, they would remember another thing and they would put that down. And eventually they could genuinely retrieve entire massive events from their pasts just by putting down the one little thing that they did remember and then giving them the freedom to remember the next little thing. And it was such always such a fantastic exercise uh, that in a way that's what happens 
answering these questions is that is that every time I remember a tiny bit more, or I allow myself to remember a tiny bit more, uh, and to, to be free of it by you know expressing it. And so I want to zero in on that idea of being free from it. So if it was something that you didn't really remember, is this that, so you've delineated before between sort of intellectual remembering and body remembering. So is it something that you feel like, okay, I've stored this somewhere. This is an issue. It's not maybe consciously an issue. Um, is that what you mean by finally being able to let it go? No longer being reactive to it. That's what I think about being letting it go. Uh, one fantastic example that, that occurred recently is up to about a year ago, I was leading a workshop of writers. And we were just, we were all talking. It was a, a group of about 20 people with ages ranging between 18 and maybe 65. And we were talking about a, a big used magazine store going out of business in Portland, Oregon. And, and how they would no longer be buying National Geographic's and people's lifetime collections of Playboy magazine because nobody ever throws away a Playboy magazine. And someone in the group said, I wonder if that's how the big box of porn in the woods happens. And the entire group got silent. And then the room just exploded because everyone in that room as a child had found a box, a bag, a suitcase, a duffel bag, but they had found a big bunch of porn in a natural setting. They found it on a beach or they found it in a desert. They found it stuffed up a tree in one case, but they found it at a completely inappropriate age and they had never talked about it because in a lot of cases, they had taken it home to their parents and said, look what I found, this treasure, look at this. And they were just attacked and they were so shamed. And in some cases they were forced to carry it back miles and miles to where they had found it. And in other cases they were forced to kind of ritualistically burn it. But this thing that they had thought was a huge treasure was suddenly, they were punished for having discovered it. So they lost their innocence in, more, in so many more ways than just finding porn. And so none of them, none of the people at this workshop table had ever talked about finding the big box of porn in the woods until someone talked about it. And then we spent the next six weeks, everyone telling their story. And for a long time, we were gonna to put together an anthology of all of these people fictionalizing their stories because it seemed to be such a universal event in people's lives. And one student uh, lobbied that we should call it children of the porn. <laughs> which is kind of nice. the title that sank the whole project because publishers wouldn't touch it. Um, but it's about identifying these things that are more or less universal. I'm not the only person that had a really shitty childhood, but there are probably a million people out there who said, I played Henry Kissinger. I would do that. I would cut myself or I would burn myself in such a way that it would distract my parents from their drama. That if I can tell the truth about my thing and I can do it in a kind of um, well-depicted, if I can execute it in a well-depicted way and, and communicate it 
so that other people can be with it. Then I give them this permission to realize they're not the only one and they can come forward with their thing and talk it out and digest it and assimilate it as just an event and, and be with it and have, have that freedom that we're kind of talking about where you're no longer so reactive to it you can't remember it, you can't be with it, you can't discuss it. Because I think that's where 90% of the people are already. And you're, you're trying to be the person who, who says, yeah, that happened to me. So that everybody can say, yeah, that happened to me. Is that a big part of what drives you finding those areas where people feel like, okay, I'm shamed around this, I can't talk about it, um, and helping them understand that it's actually pretty universal? always because those those are the stories that i tend to take into parties or social situations because if i can tell my story about workplace hazing and my first day at the truck plant for freightliner trucks and how i was sent from workstation to workstation to get the squeegee sharpener which doesn't exist and how all these big gruff guys swore and swore and just just tore into me and called me an idiot and sent me to another big tough guy who called me an idiot and humiliated me. If I can tell that story, I give people the freedom to tell me stories that are so much worse. And, and they all sort of come together to illustrate these fantastic big things that are, are what it really is to be a human being. Because the thing that really frustrates me is when I turn on streaming and I see so many platforms and I see such a, this vast amount of stuff to watch, it's all of it so filtered and so sort of homogenized and pasteurized by the production process and by the kind of testing process and by the notes process. I've got notes on this. <laughs> ah, that by the time it's on something like streaming, Again, it's such a homogenized, sterile thing that it doesn't do justice to what it is to be a human being. And so when I go out with this story that makes me look like an idiot and I give other people permission to look like an idiot, then I'm getting an access to really raw, really fantastic stories that really tell me what it is to be a person in the world not just, you know, a person on television. I'm gonna describe how I see you. Tell me if you think that I go astray with any of this. So you seem to be a keen observer of the human condition. You have found a niche in sort of difficult, embarrassing, hard parts of the human condition that your eyes sparkle, you smile a little bit when it comes on to that topic. And I can just imagine you going around parties, leading with these like crazy guts like stories to see which ones trigger um, other people to join in. Um, and it seems to be designed to help people process something to help, go ahead. It's designed to help me process. You know, if I ever said it was about fixing other people that would be a huge lie it's about but isn't there an element that it has to be related to other people in a way it's validated by other people uh but i have yet to, to throw out any aspect of my existence that 
isn't automatically echoed by endless numbers of people. Uh, one, one reason why David Fincher, the director, wanted to do Fight Club was because as a projectionist, as a teenage projectionist in Ashland, Oregon, he worked with another projectionist and they spliced uh, single frames of pornography into family movies. And he had never seen that sort of acknowledged in the culture. I didn't do it myself, but I knew people, who, other projectionists who did do that when I was a teenager. And so there, my life is not so special that every tiny bit of it isn't, won't resonate with a million other people. Uh, yeah. That to me, I think it is the very thing that fascinates me though about you in the writing is, um, and maybe it's better just to explain what I like about it instead of trying to sort of read your mind. What I like about it is I feel like the human condition is one of trying to get mental management. People are spinning out of control. They have um, confusion, self-loathing, ambition, love, joy, hatred. Like it's this weird mixture of things. In fact, this might be a good time to talk about um, your idea of self-soothing, how everybody has this thing that they sort of put themselves to bed with. Um, and finding these universals like is a big part of what allows people to get a grip on the things that haunt them because 99.99% or whatever, they're not, they're never going to write to get catharsis. They are going to hear that person went through it too. It's no longer a secret, you know, like the woman, um, and the heating pad story <laughs> where she was finally able to say her most embarrassing story to you. And the, the, the recontextualization, that's like what I'm obsessed with. The recontextualization for her in that moment is quite possibly life-changing, right? She goes from dark secret, it's ever present with her. She doesn't know how to shake it. She hears a totally unrelated story, but it somehow fits a genre of thing in her mind, which is like, oh my God, I have one of these genres of things in my mind. And I never thought that they could be funny. I never thought that I could see the humor in this. And like, I have the chills now retelling a very lame version of your amazing story. It's like that, the way that as human creatures, we are so social in nature that we long to, to, if we have to go through something bad to know other people have gone through that same thing, there is so much release in knowing that, oh my God, thank God, like I'm not alone. I'm part of this thing. I'm connected. And when I read you, I'm just like there, and I, I, I would have a very hard time defining the thing, the rail that you grab onto, but like from page one of the invention of sound, I'm like, you wouldn't even have to tell me it was your book. I'd be like, this is either Chuck or somebody trying to write like Chuck. It's, mm -hmm. it is so clearly you, like you, you have found this thing that maybe we all wish wasn't true about ourselves. And yet we have to deal with it because until we do, there is some unrealized is probably the right word. It's the inter, oh, now I'm, I am going off into the deep end and feel free to say that I'm out of my fucking mind. But like, it feels like you have this unique ability to help people integrate the shadow into their life. That's what I think about you. I, I would agree. And also maybe even sometimes to celebrate the shadow. Yes. Um, and 
the way I was taught, again, by Tom Spanbauer, I always going to go back and acknowledge Tom. And Tom was an actor in New York as well. So his method was that you have to read your work out loud in workshop. Because when you read it out loud, you find out instantly that it does or does not work. Before all the intellectualized feedback afterwards, which I kind of consider worthless, because it's kind of obligatory that people will say, I really liked this, I didn't like this, would you add a dog? You know, they have to say something, but they don't have to laugh and they don't have to gasp. And when you read it and you can make, you can bring people to tears or you can create a silence where you can stop for seconds at a time. And you've talked about this. It's so often not the fact that we're filling up every moment of silence. It's so often the broken way in which you depict something that establishes your authority. You know, two of the most flawed presenters on radio I've ever heard. Do you remember Paul Harvey? Yes. And now? Is he? The rest of the story. See, yeah. see, our compulsion is to fill every moment that we don't want dead air. You don't want to give people that option of switching away. But Paul Harvey would break his sentences in really unusual places. And in doing so, he brought you in closer and more intimately because he created a tension. And Dr. Laura Schlesinger did the same thing. It's like she studied at the knee of, of Paul Harvey. And she would break her sentences and she would hold silences that were unbearable. And nowadays, see how ready we are to jump in and fill those silences when in fact, it's the broken silences, it's the kind of semi-inarticulate things that Tom Spanbauer would call burnt tongue, things that are stated really awkwardly, that, that give a narrative so much more power than if it were really polished. All right, I wanna go back to this idea of integrating and celebrating the shadow and ask the question of why it's important. Um, do you think it's, I think it's important. Do you think it's important? It's only important if you want to not reach the end of your life and go, why the hell didn't I do those things? Uh, because there are truths that you can only tell at certain points in your life. I could only write Fight Club when I was 31 years old. It's not a book I could write right now. Why is that? Because I'm not that angry, disillusioned, good boy who was taught that if I did everything, if I went to school and I got good grades and I went to college and I got good grades and I got out and I just tried to work my way up the property ladder, if I did all the formulaic things, then I'd be happy and, and successful. And you realize around the age of 31 that you've got to start breaking the rules rather than following them. And I had the energy and I had the kind of crazed friends that I needed to write that book around. And so every book is only something you can do at a certain point in your life. And if you pass that point without having done that thing, you always look back and think, why was I so gutless? You know, there was that one line in Fight Club where Marla has sex with Tyler. And 
I, I thought, what is the most romantic thing she could say in this moment? And that is, I want to have your baby. So Marla had to say the least romantic thing in that moment, which is, I want to have your abortion. And everybody fought me on that line. The editor fought me. 20th Century Fox fought me. Even Brad Pitt came to me and said, I hate that line. My mother's going to see me say, see me in a scene with that line. And she's going to be really offended. But I feel unless there is a kind of what I call the too far, if you, unless you go too far, you will beat yourself up years later for not having gone too far. Uh, in Invention of Sound, there is something, just one short sentence in one of the first Foster Gates chapters while he's watching all this horrendous porn on his computer. And everyone fought me on that one line, but that was my too far. And I had to fight back to keep that line. And people say they closed the book at that point, especially people with kids. They close the book, they have to put the book away, but they eventually take the book out and they get past that moment. And so unless you go to the too far, you're kind of wasting your life, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I agree sort of with the intensity of the need for it. It feels maybe slightly different from my perspective in that I think it is very hard for humans to understand why they do what they do. And the one of my favorite quotes is the confused mind says no. And when I meet people, um, the number one question I get asked is how to find clarity in their life. What am I supposed to do? What's my meaning? What's my purpose? How do I find a passion? Like that whole loop of like, I know I could be doing something, should be doing something, whatever, but I have no idea how. And for me, it's always the sense of self-awareness that they're going to have to develop first, even just to understand, well, what do you respond to? What do you like? Like, what is it that gives you more energy than it takes? And it won't seem like an obvious thing. It's not like anybody, I don't think encounter something first time they encounter and goes, yep, this is what I was meant to do with the rest of my life. That certainly is not my experience, but you find something that's like, oh, that was a little bit cooler than everything else around it. And maybe I'll spend a little bit more time with that. And so you invest in that. But people that wall off parts of their own psyche, uh, they end up not being able to, and look, I'm no union um, uh, student, but the idea of having to integrate the shadow to fully find your own power to not be hiding from yourself. In fact, one of the, um, the great insights of my adult life came from Jordan Peterson, where he said, all right, everybody in World War II imagines that they're hiding and Frank in their attic, but the stats say that you're one of the Nazi guards. And when you start revisiting history with you as the problematic perpetrator, instead of like the do-gooder, then, then you'll at least acknowledge that you have the capability. Not that you, you're not heroic and sure, maybe in, in that moment you would risk your life and 100%, but that you need to run the thought exercise of what if I was too weak to do the right thing? And, and that little bit of distrust in myself has propelled me forward in ways, it makes me make sure that I know why I'm making a decision. It makes me ask why I feel a certain way, but it's an ugly thing to consider. Like, I don't wanna think, I could ever do anything horrible. And yet, accepting that, dude, humans are flawed, man, like scary flawed. 
And I am a human and in no way do I think that I have transcended the trappings of being a human. And so reading your books and getting through the hard stuff, it's like recognizing the full spectrum of the human animal and that feels necessary. And, and that's why I kind of argue against people when they say that, that a character should be likable and sympathetic, that uh, I'm much more compelled by a character who is uh, corrupt, but is just trying to do the right thing, uh, even if it's kind of a despicable thing, but it's the only right thing that the character can think of doing. Uh, yeah. Uh, these characters who are kind of paragons are super likable, super sympathetic. I really hate those characters. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I love those characters <laughs> and I totally get the advice. And in fact, many of the things I find myself drawn to as a writer are the very things that you hate, but like, that's not, <laughs> that's not confrontational to me. I love that you, you have gone in this totally different direction and I would be mortified if you were less Chuck Palahniuk, right? Like, I, I love that there are these other voices. Um, so even though I get where people are coming from and it is a commercialization, but remember, I, I see that as like, oh my God, that's how the world works. I get it. I get what we're trying to do, this sort of um, emotional resonance we're trying to create in the audience. So anyway, that's, that's maybe a difference in how we react to the magic trick. Um, but yeah, I find... I find those characters compelling. I find that they get me excited. I find that they make me want to be like them, but there's something so useful in reading about characters that make the bad choices. But what's interesting, I hate downward spiral stories mm. where characters just continually make the worst possible choice. You avoid that. How do you avoid the sort of just boring catastrophe of knowing this person is gonna make a wrong decision at every step? If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. I accept the fact that... Uh... The reading is not everyone's first choice. Reading is, is something that people tend to go to when there are no other options. So reading is something you do when your friends can't get together. So reading is something that happens typically in isolation. And it also happens a lot of times under really poor circumstances. You're in the hospital waiting for someone to die. So you read a book or you're at the airport 
waiting for a flight and it's horrible. So you read a book. That that reading is something that people kind of do under duress a lot of times. So number one, I want my books to be about people who find community. They find community with a bunch of people or they find community with one person. So Fight Club is essentially a romance where this person transcends his own kind of isolation to bond with one person. So it's got a romantic ending. So in the books, the characters always find community with at least one other person. And I've resolved that I'm not gonna resolve a story by killing the main character because the reader has to live forward in the future. The, uh, so Romeo and Juliet are not gonna die in my books because the reader has to move forward uh, his or herself. Yeah, that's interesting. I never would have thought that that was a, a rule for you. Um, what is ultimately the experience that you want the audience to walk away from these books that are challenging and confrontational? Like after um, watching Fight Club, would you have predicted, or reading Fight Club, would you have predicted that people would go and start their own fight clubs? Hell no. You know, that was the early, early 90s when I wrote that. And as I was writing it, I was thinking, people will never take this seriously. People will never accept this premise because AIDS is everywhere. And there is no way people are going to expose themselves to the blood of other people. That is completely ludicrous. People will never do or accept a narrative in which people do this. So in a way, I never thought it would sell because I thought people would just see it as a completely beyond the pale, completely unrealistic thing because bloodborne pathogens were just everywhere in the culture at the time. But the other thing about sort of working the vein of the extreme is that if you can lodge yourself in people's memory, whether or not they like you the first time, if they remember you, people change and the culture changes and people forget everything about the circumstances in which you wrote the narrative. And they will eventually come to accept a narrative either because the culture has changed or they themselves have changed. So the idea isn't to be liked right off the bat. The, the idea is to be remembered because that way you stick around long enough for people to, you know, sort of uh, eventually accept you uh, or accept the story. So that is one benefit of the too far, is the too far is like a, a hook in a song and it kind of sinks into people and it, it keeps the story in their memory. Oh, one thing, we had kind of texted about Alfred Hitchcock versus Roman Polanski. Yes, yes. Okay, what do we remember most about Alfred Hitchcock's, his whole, Ouvois, that's a French term. What do we remember most? From when I say Hitchcock. Suspense? Uh, all of the movies. The one sequence most memorable. Uh, the shower sequence in Psycho. Exactly. And it's in black and white. She's not naked. She's not getting stabbed. And she's acting. She's fake screaming. So it's all phony. It's all phony. But you know, when we actually do see a woman stabbed and we see her blood, 
and she's not acting and it's in color. Gonna venture a guess? No. I think it's the only time we've ever seen it in the history of mainstream movies. When Mia Farrow has a blood draw in Rosemary's Baby, when she's first finds out she's pregnant, the nurse has a huge hypodermic needle, sticks it into the inside of her elbow, starts to extract her blood on screen, and Mia Farrow has to deliver her lines with this fantastically tense, pained expression because she knows if she messes up this take, it's another blood draw. And they're gonna keep sucking her blood out, bright red blood right there on screen. And it's gonna keep coming out of her until she, until Roman Polanski gets a, a, a take, something he can use. It is one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen in cinema. And it does everything that Hitchcock pretended to do in Psycho. That is Mia Farrow's blood. And that is a real nurse. And Mia Farrow is a real person saying a made up line in that moment about the, seeing the Fantastics on Broadway. And it's little true cringeworthy things like that that make the whole devil worshiping phoniness that sell it. Uh, and so it's these little visceral moments of truth that we may or may not recognize at the time but they have this fantastic way of getting under the radar and keeping the narrative in the culture for forever. It's interesting you talk about punctuating sort of this unbelievable thing with something that's real. I had that same, I don't remember, I've seen Rosemary's Baby, but I don't remember it the way that I remember The Exorcist. But when she goes to have like the spinal fluid removed, yeah. Oh God, that scene freaks me out to this day. Like the sounds of the machine and like when they pull the thing out and the thin, you know, strand yeah. of blood comes squirting out. It just felt so real. And it was so bizarre to juxtapose sort of the cold, hard, sterile science with, you know, everything leading up to that, which was iconography, Ouija boards, demons, you know what I mean? It was like really sort of old world creepy. And now all of a sudden, like, what would have been for the time, like very futuristic, very sterile, very white, high tech. Oh man, especially because they're doing it in the neck. Ah, you know, that and, always freaked me out. I think that's real, isn't it? Is I, it? I don't, think, I don't think they faked those scenes because now that you mentioned it, I remember that, but I typically don't remember it because I usually leave the room or I fast forward to that, that horrible moment. Seeing you? a child tormented in that way. I think that that blood spurt is, is a real blood spurt. I wouldn't be surprised, but oh God, maybe the shot is such that they're not using, they're not really using her. I can't remember, but yeah. I can't fathom. She was so young when yeah. they filmed that. Um, but really, again, it's those visceral moments that sell the whole rest of the phoniness mm. that without those visceral, fantastically physical, what my teacher Tom Spanbauer would say on the body moments, then everything else would seem so much more easily dismissible. Yeah, who that that is uh, body horror is like a whole thing. Um, I don't know if we have the same sort of genre here in the US, but in Japan, it's like a whole category of manga is body horror things mm. happening to almost always teenagers makes sense because of what they're going through. Um, but almost always uh, a teenager, their bodies going weird, crazy things under the skin. Oh, 
that stuff I find super freaky. I actually want to go back to what you were saying about the AIDS epidemic. Um, that was something that I was just young enough where I saw it only on the news. It wasn't like a super real thing. Um, definitely on my radar at the very beginning of my sex life. Um, but by then it was already starting to sort of lose steam. Um, how did that inform you? What was that sort of like up close? When I was in my early 20s, I, I was suddenly aware of death. I'm not sure why. I don't think anybody in my life had died up to that point. But I became obsessed with the idea that someday I was going to have to die. And I was terrified that somehow I was going to do it wrong. I was not going to die correctly. And so I had to explore every aspect of what it was to die. So I think at the age of 23 or 24, I started volunteering in a hospice for indigent people who had been brought in from the street in order to die in a kind of home-like setting. And a lot of them, if not most of them, were dying of AIDS. And I didn't have any kind of skills, so my job was to, to talk to them and to take them to do fun things for the last time. So it was about getting them into my Mercury Bobcat, which was kind of a fancy version of the Ford Pinto that I had had since high school. And it was about taking them to the ocean for the last time. It was about picking up their parent at the airport and bringing their parent to be with them for the last time. And so I basically, the only people I knew were dying people. And I got to see, and I got to get really complete with what it was to die. Uh, this is the process, I won't mess it up. I'll be able to do this when the time comes. But when I took them to their support groups, I would find the support group always thought that I was dying of what they were dying of. And I would have, I'd start to tell myself the narrative that became the support group narrative in Fight Club, that someone was doing this to feel a greater sense of aliveness. And to tell the truth, when I went back to Freightliner, to the plant, my terrible job, that I was working with my degree in journalism because you couldn't get work in journalism. So I was working on the assembly line at Freightliner. I felt great. Just the fact that I was not dying made me feel so good. And, uh, and there was such a, a rush that all of that, that sort of initial inquiry into death really brought me present to life and ultimately gave me the kind of emotional through line of Fight Club. And I can't remember what your, 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 your entry into that was, your question, I forgive me. Uh, no, yeah. no problem at all. Um, You're talking what, about body horror? Yeah, talking about um, body horror, but then I think that we moved on from there. I forget too, as well. I was so engrossed in, in what you were saying, but the AIDS epidemic up close I think right. was the thing that, that really got us there. Yeah. And the stories that people would tell me, and also there was at least one case where the dying patient would give me keys and say, you've got to go to my apartment. You've got to go to my rooming house you've got to throw away these things that I don't want my parents to find. So I would 
more or less kind of break into where they lived. And I would have to take out the really tawdry, filthy, uh, whether it was pornography or whether it was sex toys, it was my job to bag it up and to get rid of it. And in a way, it broke my heart because it was the most intimate aspect of themselves that was in these spaces. And so often, in, I was burgling this kind of profane, sacred sense of who they were and that they would never come back to these things. I wrote a book called Snuff, which is about a, a woman who was attempting to shoot the world's largest gangbang movie in which she plans to commit suicide so that it will be the last gangbang movie ever made and that she holds the record. And in it, there is a, a tiny little flashback scene, which is from the first book I ever wrote that never got published, in which a guy gets a blow-up doll and as he's having sex with it, he realizes it's losing air and it's actually dying beneath him. And he's desperately trying to get his rocks off before it goes totally flat. And the moment before he's able to ejaculate, his mother walks into the room and he stands up with this pink, limp, basically cadaver hanging off of his erect penis, like a big surrender flag. And that's where the scene cuts. But it's one of very few things I was able to salvage from that first book. And again, it goes back to these kind of search and destroy missions I was sent on by dying people. Because once I bagged up all of their secrets, I would be leaving their home and I would realize this home could belong to anyone at this point. This is really the only thing what I've got bagged here is this is the only thing that made this really intimately this person's space. Now anybody could live here and now somebody else will live here. And so that was another aspect of, of AIDS uh, that I found that this has really stayed with me is this, this being sent out to recover and to destroy and to keep secret the secrets of so many people who were dying at the time. And again, I was 23 years old. Is it a more beautiful world to you if they let the family discover those secrets? Or is it just about hanging on as long as you can to your presence in that space? I, I think it goes back to, again, to uh, uh, integrating the shadow and kind of accepting the shadow. Um, yeah. And allowing other people to sort of, people who love you and know the shadow is there. And to some extent, you know, allowing them to sort of be with the shadow themselves. Um, in the spring of 1999, my father was, uh, was, mur was murdered and the man was sent to prison years later. But when my siblings went up to resolve his household, we found half-filled prescription bottles of Viagra tucked all over in the house. And they were like between sofa cushions. They were basically wherever the magic might happen, dad had stashed Viagra. And we would be weeping as we resolved his possessions. And then we'd find one of these bottles of Viagra and we'd all start laughing. Uh, 
because they so humanized him in that moment. They so presented a really vital, alive aspect of him that he was 59. I'm 59. So he died at my age. And the idea that we would find these very sort of sexualized hints of his, of his love life was really touching. It really, it gave us a, a fantastic sense of comfort. Um, we really felt like we discovered something about dad that we never would have known. Yeah. It's interesting. Sex is one of those things that it's, it's so strange. It is so out of space and time. This is an idea I've never talked about out loud. I don't even know if I've discussed this aspect of it with, with my wife. See, this is my job. Dude, I know. And one of the questions I want to ask you is why people open up to you. Obviously, I have my theory because of how you make me feel. Uh, but very curious to know what your take is. Um, but there's an aspect to sex that is so out of time and place where when you're with somebody, all the noises, sounds, the way that you act, all of it is, is perfectly contextualized and makes sense. But when you see it from the outside, out of context, it is so weird. And that's the, go ahead. Or when it's over, so often after people have sex, they start laughing because suddenly they're present to this fantastic absurdity of this thing that they just were a moment before that no longer is who they are. That fantastic uh, transition is so always so funny. And we, I don't know whether it's funny, but we just kind of laugh out of relief. Mm. Oh, yeah. But please. No, I mean, that that's it. So, you know, I get the person who is asking you to go into their home to get rid of things because if you're dying, there might not be time to recontextualize yourself in the eyes of whoever finds that. So while some people may find it and think it's endearing, if the context with which they've approached that person is radically different, I could see them thinking, ah, oh, you know, it's jarring and I don't have sort of time to, to deal with it. I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I get the impulse to hide it. I'm, I may be more fascinated by the sort of aching beauty that you see in it. Um, why do people tell you like the, the most, the story they never tell anybody else? Why you, what is it about you? It really goes back to recognizing that our primary drive is to, to, to look good and to be right and to avoid being dominated and if possible, to dominate the situation, to kind of impose our reality on reality. And if I can step back, once you recognize that you realize you have a choice, you don't have to do it anymore, that you can risk really looking like the idiot. You can really be the goat. You don't have to be the hero all the time. And when you risk looking like the goat, you give everybody else the permission to risk looking like the goat. Uh, yeah. I know a story from your life um, that I think ties into this, but I'm so curious. So you will go to parties and intentionally make a mistake that makes you look stupid. And you know, you do it because you love letting them feel smart. And you know how that moment will sort of create neurochemistry in them. <laughs> Why are you doing that though? Like you don't correct them later and say, no, I really knew that. You really let them think you're dumb and that they're smart. Well, it's funny. Uh, 
it gives them such a rush. It's like giving them a present. They're so happy because they're so right. People want to be right. And so if you can allow them to figure out the mystery and be smarter, like in guts, when I say it's a snake, it's a sea serpent that's come out of our pool drain, the entire audience knows it's not a snake. And so at that moment, the audience is smarter than the narrator. What is the first thing that Scarlett O'Hara says in Gone with the Wind? War, war, war. It's ruining all the barbecues. There's never going to be a war or something like that. There's never going to be a war. And so in that moment, regardless of how beautiful and rich and charming she is and young she is, we are smarter than her. And we suddenly embrace her like she's our child because we see that she's dumb and she doesn't know what's about to hit her. And so you give people a gift when you allow them to be right. And among my, my lefty Portland friends, my favorite thing is if somebody brings up writing or poetry, I'll, I'll sort of go off on Sylvia Plath uh, about you know what a, a bigoted racist person she was. And it gets everybody sort of, it hooks them. And they're instantly, Sylvia Plath wasn't a bigoted racist person. What's your proof? And I say, well, she wrote the bell curve. And there's a moment of silence when people realize that I'm saying bell curve instead of bell jar. And suddenly they're all instantly right at the same moment and they all get to attack me. And it's wonderful to watch. Uh, you know, it's kind of trolling people, but it's, you know, all of entertainment is kind of, is kind of trolling people. It's bringing them to an epiphany or, or an emotional state in a very deliberate, calculated way. And so that's just one of the kind of most basic ways. It's like telling a joke people don't know you're telling. Uh, and it lets them be right. It lets them have the, the epiphany. It lets them dominate me. Uh, and there's just so much that works about that. And is the layer of that that is for you that you recognize you are sort of the master storyteller who understands your audience and watch, I can elicit this emotion right on cue? Or is it actually, I'm Santa Claus, I don't want anyone to know, and I just want you to feel good about yourself, even if it's at my expense? It's kind of both. Yeah. You know, it is, it's a sense that you have, uh, you've mastered a skill, but it's also a sense that you're serving an audience, that you are bringing them you were uh, rewarding their attention. Uh, yeah. I hate to go on tour with a story that doesn't work. I've done it one year. It was a story that it might have worked because people keep asking for it, but I came home and I threw it away and people are still asking for it decades later. They uh, heard it and they want to hear it again? They want to hear it again. It's kind of the lost story. But it wasn't a funny story. And so because there was such tension and people did not laugh, I interpreted it as a story that failed. And the idea that you can go up there and fail people on stage feels like such a disservice to them that I just never really want to do that. I want to have a story that, that elicits a whole range of emotions and engages people physically and leaves them kind of freer in their own skin. Like I guts. throw it away. 
Well, I threw it away because, because since it was so tense through the whole story and it had such a quiet epiphany, I never got kind of a sense that people were hooked by it. Uh, yeah. Recently, people have been asking for it. I've tried to find it and it's, it's gone. It's lost. So if people are looking for love nests still, love nest does not exist. That's so interesting. Like you and I have very different reactions to bad work. Like to me, I, I not only do I save everything, whether I think it's good or not, I'll save like infinite versions and make like save them in different places to make sure that they can't get lost. Uh, I'm so paranoid. Like you never know a sentence later might be useful. Uh, and I want, or I may never look at it again, but, and maybe it's just like a hoarder personality problem, but uh, that's so interesting to me that you would throw something away. I mean, especially because somebody like me who reveres your work, it's like even bad Chuck Palahniuk would be fascinating. So in fact, do you see yourself, can you see yourself as Chuck Palahniuk or do you see yourself as just a guy? I see myself as, um, as a kind of disposable conduit. And I don't mean that in a kind of self-effacing or kind of martyrish way as a Catholic, but I see myself as, as a thing through which things pass that in a way I am this constant uh, sort of gathering, this harvesting of human experience and then organizing, organizing that experience and presenting it in a narrative so that the experience has a context. Um, and so in a way, I'm, I'm still the journalist that I was kind of hoping to be, but I don't keep my notes. And part of my ritual is to burn everything like once a year. So if there's a university that thinks that there's a big bunch of papers somewhere, there's not. There's the stories that go out and get published. And then there's a, a stove full of ashes. I, I throw everything away, nothing. What? Recycling, Why? because, you know, I think Kafka got a raw deal. Kafka wanted everything that wasn't published burned. And his best friend brought it all to the light of day. And I think in a way, if somebody can ask me to throw away their dildos, <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw away all of my rough drafts all of my didn't work stories, all of my sort of failed experiments, I think it's my right to, to throw them away. No question, no question, it is your right. Uh, man, that's interesting. Do you feel, is it just like, hey, part of the writing process is rewriting, you polish it, you get better, and I would never want somebody to mistake you know, an early draft for thinking that I thought that that was good enough? Or is there like a sense of release and letting go of getting rid of it? What is the, like, what's the end game to burning it all? I think it's more the latter that you have to sort of, for me, I have to get back to what we talked about that getting back to zero, getting back to sort of empty and meaningless so that you can start the next project without being too attached to the previous project. And God bless my dad, but my dad always said, the only sex advice he gave my brother and I, he said, don't dump the one you're with until you're dating the next one, which is probably why he had Viagra all over his house. <laughs> and so part of completing a previous book, story, whatever, 
is starting the next one, falling in love with the next idea, so that no matter how the previous idea is, is received, I'm no longer emotionally attached to it. I'm dating the next one. And so part of losing that attachment is destroying all the notes, destroying all the drafts, uh, everything, so that there's no trace of you know, that thing in my life anymore. Wow. Do you have any anxiety when you go to do it? No, none whatsoever. That's so interesting. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Super fascinating. I could literally just keep bugging you about that one until the end of the time, but we will move on. Uh, why did your dad get killed? Oh, you know, if I want to be really metaphysical about it, my dad get killed, got killed because it was fate. When my dad was a small child, his father, um, and there's a lot of theory, his father supposedly had a head injury, but also his father was always a little unstable. His father went nuts and killed his wife, my, my grandmother, and tried to kill my father and his one brother who were home at the time. They were both small children. Age? What's that? I was just going to ask what age. Oh, I think my father was, I want to say he was four, four years old. He wasn't in school yet. And he and his younger brother were both home. And the rest of their siblings, I think there were 11 siblings, were off at school. But he spent the day trying to find my father to kill him. And my father hid under a bed watching his, his father walk around with the barrel of the rifle, looking for him and calling for him until he eventually killed himself. Whoa. So my father in the house? In the house, yeah. The house that we used to spend summers visiting, my mother never told us. And when she finally told us about the murder-suicide, we asked what room it had happened in. And she said, do you know that yellow bedroom off the kitchen? And that was the room that us kids always had to sleep in every summer. <laughs> and she said, I always hated turning the lights off and leaving you kids in that room because it had no windows. It was just uh, almost like a, a large closet in this very uh, up in the mountains, sort of uh, very, more or less, it was like a log cabin. It was a very small, very rough house. Anyway, my father was married many, many times. And he was kind of always trying to find the right woman until he answered a personals ad in 1999. And the headline of that ad was Kismet, which is the Arabic word for fate. And it was a woman looking for a man. And he started dating this woman. And she had been a lawyer in the prison system in the Midwest. And she had married a prisoner that she had helped uh, get parole. And the prisoner had subsequently, I believe he had molested her daughter from a previous marriage. So she was pressing charges to send him back to prison. But until he was back in prison, she more or less needed to date a really big guy who could be her bodyguard. And I only know this motivation because her daughter came to me during the trial and said, you know, I'm really sorry. My mom chose your father because he was the biggest guy who answered her personal sad. Whoa. She was just looking for a bodyguard. 
And on what was more or less their first date, they took a, a, a road trip together. He was leaving his house in the mountains, which he had cleaned up meticulously because he was eventually going to bring her back there. So everything was completely clean and neat. But as he was leaving, a huge boulder dislodged from the hillside rolled down and blocked his driveway. He almost missed his train to pick her up. But he was able to leverage this boulder off the driveway. And he even made a little sign uh, uh, proclaiming it Kismet Rock. He was going to be the, the landmark to their new budding relationship. And he put this sign on the boulder. And then he went, he picked her up. And when he took her back to her house at the end of this, this road trip, her ex-husband was waiting for them. And he shot them both. Oh. And as they were dying in her house, he set fire to the house. Oh, shit. And their bodies were only preserved because they were on the first floor of the house. And a large bed on the second floor fell through. And the unburning mattress covered their bodies. So my father, who had spent that horrible afternoon of his childhood hiding under a bed from a man with a gun, who'd killed his mother, ends up shot by a man with a gun under a bed with a woman he's found at the end of his life who ran a personal ad called Fate and then not even a boulder blocking his driveway could stop him from having this rendezvous that ended with his death. So the whole perfection of it made it had an odd comfort to it. And, and maybe I'm just a kind of an imposing a kind of inevitability on it because, you know, I'm a writer and writers do that. They, they create a narrative that allows them to, you know, continue living. But there is a kind of level of coincidence there that would shame even E.M. Forrester, who was a writer who just, you know, exploited coincidence enormously. And whether it's something I'm inventing or not, uh, it can't kind of, it always makes dad's death seem like an inevitability rather than a horrible, tragic, you know, accident, well, crime. Whoa, that is a very crazy story. You talked about narrative and how we make narratives that I think the words you just said were to go on living. Um, talk about soothing narratives. Mm. You collect people's soothing narrative stories. Um, as you relate it to me in text, it was so foreign to my experience. I wanna know more. What are these stories that people put together that soothe them? What is it with the repetition and the sense of trying to exhaust themselves? I thought I was the only one that did this, but ever since I was a small child, in order to fall asleep, I would run uh, typically the same scenario through my mind. And, and it was usually about some sort of being in a huge fight. And more often than not, I would lose the fight. And that scenario would exhaust me so much that I would fall asleep. And there were studies with uh, Olympic wrestlers and martial artists that show that if they lose a match, their testosterone levels plummet. 
But if they win a match, their testosterone levels rocket up. And the theory is that if you lose, your testosterone levels fall so that if you're injured, you will not get into another fight too soon. You will give yourself time to recover. And so if possible, the narrative that I was running in my head was always to end up being beaten in some competition so that my, my body chemistry would sort of collapse and I would fall asleep. I never told anybody that story. I never told anybody that. And then one day, another writer in, in the workshop I was in at the time, the, the thriller writer, Chelsea Kane, she started talking about self-comforting stories that children well into adulthood tell themselves basically the same scenarios as a way of self-comforting so that they basically lull themselves to sleep through a mental process. And for a lot of people, they're very sexualized stories. That's how they exhaust themselves. And a, a big faction of people, it's stories where they drive themselves to tears. They think of the most increasingly sad things they can imagine on until purpose. the point on purpose, until they cry themselves to sleep. And Chelsea told me she writes about serial killers. And basically, all of her books are her presenting her self-comforting stories in a kind of, you know, packaged, commodified way. And that's the thing that brings her back to writing them. It's not the fact that this is her profession or people love these books. It's the fact that these books are all Chelsea Kane's self-comforting story that she will be attached to for the rest of her life because it serves her in this really basic functional way. And so that's another kind of universal thing. It's harder to introduce in a party setting because people don't want to talk about something so intimate. Uh, but when I can get people to talk about it, it's amazing how people have learned to put themselves to sleep since they were really itty bitty children. That's really interesting. I did not know that people were doing that. Um, when I was little, I, the only thing I would do is think about the universe. And that was sort of the one recurring thing because I was so freaked out by this notion of an expanding universe and my little head just could not get around that idea. And so I guess I would think about that till I was tired enough and fell asleep. But I never thought of it as like something I was doing to comfort myself or anything like that. Um, that's well, really interesting. They're just called self-comforting stories when in fact they're, they're kind of an, an emotionally exhausting story. Mm. Uh, it's about kind of exhausting anxiety. Uh, in a consistent way. Neurochemical management, like that to me is, is such a fascinating part of the human experience. The things that people do to um, deal with trauma, to deal with uh, repeating ideas they can't get out of their head. I had a sleep expert on, I'm so surprised this came from a sleep expert, but I had a sleep expert on and he was talking about how they're just now really beginning to discover why we dream and that there's a hypothesis now that has some pretty profound data to back it up that a huge part of the reason that we dream, obviously memory consolidation, but the more interesting part is that what the phase of rapid eye movement does is strip the memory from the emotion. Hmm. And what you find, and, and it's, um, 
noradrenaline is the chemical that you can track. So most people, when they go to sleep, noradrenaline plummets. They dream in this very low noradrenaline state, which is like the fight or flight chemical. And so they're repeating, you know, going back to your idea of repeating over things and that it loses its power. You do that in your dream. So you're going over and over and over this very traumatic event. And when you do it with your um, noradrenaline levels low, you come out and over, you know, six months or a year, all of a sudden that you've worked through it. You've, as he says, you've taken the sharp edges off. And so now you have the memory without the emotional intensity. But if you take somebody with PTSD, for whatever reason, when they're in REM sleep, they can't lower the noradrenaline levels. So now they're revisiting it over and over and over at the same heightened emotional level. And so it's just baking in and baking in and baking in at that super intense level. And I thought, well, that's so interesting because the new research that they're showing is you take somebody, you put them on MDMA, have them revisit a traumatic event. And now because you've got the neurochemistry essentially of love, you love yourself, you're accepting, you're positive, you feel connected, and you have somebody revisit a traumatic event, they're able to do that cognitive reframing that you talk about. And I just thought, man, this is a game of neurochemistry. Like this is, to me, all of life is a game of neurochemistry. And I'm constantly reminding myself, you're having a biological experience. And when I attack it, good. Well, I've always thought that um, the storyteller, storytelling was the same kind of digestive assimilative process that dreaming was. Because people quit telling a story once it loses its juice for them. You know, if you're not a professional, like a comedian who knows the joke always works, you tell a story because it works for you. It gives you, uh, there's still kind of an unresolved bite to it. But once that is gone, once the story is sort of stale, you quit telling it. You completely digested it and assimilated it as part of your identity, this thing that you could not accept previously. And so I've always thought that dreaming and, sto and storytelling was more or less the same process. And there is a writer, Steve Almond, who said that teaching writing is basically the talk therapy of our time. Because people used to, in talk therapy, they would tell their story over and over until they completely wore it out. And at that point, they could move beyond it. But talk therapy was so expensive that drug companies chose uh, pharmaceuticals instead. It was just cheaper than paying for a lot of talk therapy. And writing teachers have since found that when you put people into a, a workshop and you force them to tell their story as a craft exercise, it's kind of, you're removing the emotion from it. You're turning it into a very empirical, very calculated, crafted thing. Then a thing that has to serve the audience instead of serving the teller, a thing that has to have a replicated uh, you know, re response, then you are turning it into that sort of unemotional thing that you're talking about in, in a, your dream state. And you, you allow people to sort of very rapidly get through their, their, their shit by turning it into a craft exercise, a writing exercise. So I totally agree with that dream hypothesis. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how deft the mental mechanisms are, but also terrifying how often they break. When I think about childhood trauma, man, um, do you know who Gabor Mate is? I think he's, 
think you'd find him interesting. So he works a lot with childhood trauma, addiction. And um, I was asking him, what's more important, the first three years of life? Like, would you rather have somebody who was loved in the first three years of their life, taken great care of, touched, hugged, read to, just all the expressions of love that a human being can give another one, but then the rest of their life is difficult? Or would you rather the first three years are an absolute atrocity? They're not touched enough. They're not nurtured. They're not taken care of. But the rest of their life, they are. And he said that it was a really terrible question and he hated me asking it. But uh, if he had to answer that, he thought it was better to get the first three years right, because then at least the person will be resilient enough to handle it, but that you can actually cause brain damage just by not showing a child enough affection. Mm. And that is so scary. The way that things will hardwire and then somebody's life is entirely dictated by that, this, this is coming back to why I find your writing so powerful is, dude, the number of people that I meet that are trapped in their own mind by something that happened to them, something that they did, whatever, that they're not able to get any sort of cathartic resolution on, it's really scary. It's a, it's a terrifying percent. I, I won't guess what it is, but it's enough to, to really be stressful. Like just to think that it exists in the world is so hard. And this kind of bridges to when when we talk about art as a kind of or creative process as a, as a way of fixing people, I always bridle at that because on a really basic level, who am I to recognize your problem and then to try to fix your problem? You know, that would be, that seems really arrogant. Uh, but what I, I can buy into what I can accept is that you can shock people or you can show them something so fresh and new that it pops them out of their drama for a moment. And it shows them that the world can be fantastically unpredictable and not what they think it's going to be. Uh, years ago, I was in the dollar store and I've written about this. There was a guy who was on the short side, but he was wearing a really great coat, a really snazzy coat. And I saw that coat and I was just so taken with it. And that's why I noticed that no matter where I went in the dollar store, he was kind of shadowing me. He was in my line of sight. And finally he approached me and I thought, oh, he's going to be a reader. And he said, before I could say anything, before I could do the whole gracious Oh, thank you for reading my work. It's always wonderful to hear. Bullshit. He said, a few years ago, you did an event, one of your adult bedtime stories event, and everyone was supposed to come in pajamas. And I bought a ticket and my brother died that day. And I wasn't close to anybody like I was close to my brother. And I was just devastated. And I was in shock, but I still had this ticket and I was just sleepwalking. You know, I left my father, my, my brother's funeral and I came to your event and I was standing in a line on the sidewalk waiting to come in. And you came down the sidewalk in a bathrobe and pajamas with your arms full of these huge carnival stuffed animals. And you gave me a giant five foot stuffed penguin. And he said, in that moment, 
when you gave me this penguin, it shocked me out of all of my sadness. And I realized that life was worth living, that life would offer me surprises that I could not conceive of, that there would still be things that would surprise and dazzle and delight me. My life wasn't over. Just by the gesture of being given this huge penguin. And I was, I was left speechless in the dollar store. I was just so shocked and, and moved, really deeply moved. And I think that ideally that's, that's really what I want to do is just not fix someone, not sort of show them a, a new improved way of being, but to just to show them the whole spectrum of what's, what's possible in existence. That it's not just screwed down to these, these small options that you've decided on when you were three years old. Because when you were three years old, something happened and you decided that that's how the world was and that's how you were going to be in relation to the world. I want to show them something that sort of busts open, you know, what they think the world is going to be. And the first time I saw Harold and Maude, that was the feeling. I was dumbfounded. I'd never seen a movie like that. It was so dark and so funny and left me so jazzed at the end. And there've been certain performance pieces I've seen that did the same thing for me. Um, so in lieu of fixing somebody, I always kind of strive to kind of present them with something that is going to make them excited about living. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I love that you cap off like this extraordinarily deep with blah, blah, blah. Dude, that is a great place to end. That is uh, fuck. I love that. What a great uh, thing to endeavor to do. I think you do it in spades. Uh, where can people connect with you? Your book tours are a sight to behold. I hope that we get back to those ASAP. Um, but where in the meantime, can people follow you, engage with you? You know, there's a uh, Chuck uh, is uh, the biggest fan site uh, run by Dennis. God bless Dennis. And uh, uh, I think all of the, the usual social media uh I'm not much of a social media person, but I do like to sort of plug the things I believe in. Uh, so, you know, I think Instagram, I think I'm on Instagram and Facebook. So, but chuckpolinick.net is the, the main place. Amazing. Well, brother, thank you so much for taking the time. I can say with all sincerity in the world, I am so glad you exist. I'm so glad that you put your work out into the world. It is amazing. Uh, so again, just grateful to get to spend some time with you. And speaking of things to be grateful for, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Thank you very much.